Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed brought to you by Whole Whale, we are talking about the 988 mental health crisis hotline rolling out. We talked about it before, but now it is very much live and announced. Excited to talk through that and other bits of news. Nick, how is it going? It's going good, George. I'm extremely happy to be in air conditioning currently. It's a, a hot one in New York, but as we were just talking about earlier, uh, happy we're not in Europe. And if there is ever evidence of climate change, it's that it's a hundred something degrees longer. So I guess that'll be showing up in our news at some point, but yeah, the, the nonprofits in, uh, in the U S have other problems, but at least heat is not one, right? Absolutely. But we'll go right into our first story and this is our at a glance. And we wanted to talk about the 988 mental health crisis hotline that, as you mentioned, has rolled out across the country. So. Over the weekend, the new 988 number, which you can call just as you would 911, will now redirect you to uh, mental health crisis counselors' support in a similar way as to the National um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So the effort, in large part, spearheaded by the Department of Health and Human Services and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, in conjunction with lots of different uh, national and local partners has officially uh, rolled out this new number, which went live over the weekend. So this has been years in the making. There's been federal legislation making this possible. States have passed legislation to be beef up funding in preparation for this. Some questions remain about different states and different call centers' ability to handle the volume of calls. But it seems like for the most part, they're able to handle the volume as of now. The 988 Lifeline uh, functions 24-7 and provides support to people in crisis. It's available for both calls and text messages, giving options to people in crisis, calling for help, of course. And the the piece we wanted to touch on here is that lots of different organizations are probably involved or have heard about this or otherwise should be communicating this. So health organizations and other mental health uh, projects that serve individuals at risk of suicide are definitely advised to promote this new 988 helpline number, whether it's through community education campaigns. We know some of our clients, for example, have been preparing for this for a while, putting it on their website, looking for places across their website where the, the old number, which I believe will be redirected here, but either way, it's important to up those num- update those numbers if you have them on your website. So this is a big project, a couple years in the making, and I think will really help people seeking help find it at the exact moment they need it. This is incredible. What a great resource that's being rolled out. And yes, there are some questions. There will be some, frankly, news articles and stories of, oh, this state by region by area wasn't able to handle the call volume. Uh, and that's just a natural sort of scaling up because guess what? This has not existed before and it's not clear what demand will be. And it seems that uh, regionally they're coming up with different solutions and call centers uh, as well as obviously national response. But ultimately, like 
these are on the ground solutions that are happening at a, at a state level. Is that what you're seeing, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly it. So uh, there is this national number, but the implementation of this is still kind of latching on to existing infrastructure. So there's lots of different networks and call centers and nonprofits and hotlines that have all kind of consolidated into this network. So um, yeah, it, it's really kind of uh, an all hands on deck effort here, which is really, really cool. Um, but yeah, there's tons and tons of different organizations involved in this. The idea is that if you call um, the number, you'd be directed to um, someone on the phone specializing in crisis support um, relatively near you. Um, so it's not like, you know, one big call center in the sky. It's you'd then be redirected to a center in your general vicinity. Yeah. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifelines uh, main number, uh, they said, will still remain active. Calls are routed to 988. So there are a lot, there's like a lot of routing, it seems like going on here to make sure people find uh, the resource that they need when they need it. I think when I look at this, what gets me the most excited is about the idea of reducing friction, reducing friction around accessing mental health and also de-escalating moments of mental health crisis that previously 911 was expected to deal with. When you reduce friction for a public service, good things happen. When you reduce friction, let's say in terms of your access to, I don't know, a fire extinguisher, when your kitchens maybe has a small grease fire, guess what happens? The house doesn't burn down if the friction is reduced. If you can access the fire extinguisher, you don't have to stretch very far to have this metaphor play out and play out at scale. So I think the next big lift that I'm looking at and hoping for, and we are seeing with some of our clients is the idea of making 988 as common as 911 in terms of who do you call when this happens and making that just as, as, as known as possible. And that takes a long time to filter in to the public zeitgeist, but certainly nonprofits that are on the front line working with communities on the ground are are a big pillar of awareness here. Yeah, George, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we both uh, are New Yorkers and <laughs> at least at heart. And we know that, uh, you know, 311, the, I think, implemented by the Bloomberg administration, which is kind of like a catch-all helpline for being a New York City resident, um, rolled out about 15 years ago. And I know many New Yorkers, that's, that's, that's their favorite thing. Um, like they think that's kind of a, you know, a legacy achievement. Um, and, you know, New York supports you, lots of vulnerable populations and communities. And like in that spirit of streamlining access, rolled out those numbers. So I think in many ways, kind of uh, maybe taking inspiration from that model. But yeah, to your point about accessibility, accessibility is everything. And we've talked about that on this podcast a lot, whether it's streamlining access to food stamps um, via, you know, UX changes or apps or, uh, and I think that's that's where innovation um, it comes from, and it's really cool to see. I think I think we should be proud as Americans that we were able to achieve this. And a uh, a shameless plug, but I believe helpful, hopeful, hopeful that it's useful to you that our inclusivity tool, our inclusivitytool.com, now will actually search for nine one one as well as these 
types of emergency response numbers and suggest that you add 988. So there is a way now that you could crawl your entire site, check your entire site, all of the content for where you're talking about potentially 911 or these emergency services, and it will help you flag and find all of those pages in all of those places where you might want to consider adding 988 as the other option for people in mental health crisis. Absolutely. All right, Troy, shall I take us into our next story? What do we got? All right, this is, this is one you dug up, and this comes from the Pew Research Center, and the title of this article is, Do All Sides Deserve Equal Coverage? And it was an analysis of, I guess you can say, bias and impartiality and perceptions of whether journalists should or shouldn't be news coverage. And the data here is super interesting. So the split is that um, 44% of U.S. journalists believe that they should strive to give every side equal coverage, whereas of the broader U.S. American adult population, 76% think that journalists should always strive to give every side equal coverage. So the TLDR here is that the general public thinks that journalists should be overwhelmingly impartial, whereas U.S. journalists think that actually not all sides um, deserve the same equal coverage and are much more skeptical of that notion. Uh, this sets up, I think, is a trend that's probably pretty palpable for most of our listeners, and that is a decrease in trust in uh, news media and journalism. And it's a tricky ethical question, and uh, there's a lot to unpack here. But George, why'd you include this in our uh, news feed this week? There, anytime I see a delta between people in power, people that are in and running part of the, you know, four large verticals of our content, you know, our business sector, government sector, nonprofit sector, media sector. And there's such a delta between the U.S. journalists who 44% say, journalists should always strive to cover each side equally versus 76%. I'm not like, I will, I will say like, I'll reserve judgment here. I don't, you know, I could, I could make this argument powerfully both directions. I don't think this is what it's about in my mind. Cause right now, maybe you're saying, oh my gosh, this is a quick check on you and for your organization. And this is what I want to put in the back of your mind. Both sideism, like, oh, both sides could, you know, equal coverage and your mind, if you were on maybe one political leaning jumps to an example, you're like, well, what about this? And I just want to point out this Delta, which is massive 44% versus 76%. Uh, and then also with age ranges of journalists, cause it continues. So this is another massive demographic shift in thinking about this issue of, of coverage for journalists under the age of 29. They say 37% say journalists should always strive to cover each side equally. Obviously, on the other side, 63 say, no, we don't deserve equal coverage. And when you get over 64, journalists over 64, journalists that have been in the business for a longer time, clearly doing the work and having seen more, they're actually more 50-50. If you're over 50, it's basically 50-50. That is also a massive demographic difference in the way that people in the same industry, both left and right leaning, are thinking. 
And then when you dial that down into, all right, well, what about the political spectrum? Uh, journalists that lean right uh, say that 57% of them say journalists should always strive to cover each side equally. And if you lean left, it's 30%. 30% that say journalists should always strive to give each side equal coverage. That is probably the biggest disparity. And that should be a, no, a note of concern for that sort of extreme level. So it seems that when you get more toward the, the left, you have this immediate reaction that there are more binary situations, more black and white. This is clear. They are bad. We are good. And so I want to come back to that earlier prompt. What triggered in your mind, the listener, when uh, you were hearing about this? What would you respond? Consider where you fall demographically, psychologically, psychodemographic, where you land left versus right. Did you fall into that bucket or not? And what does it actually mean if your organization might be out of line, might be a larger delta with the audience you serve? I'm not saying one side is right and wrong. Again, I could make strong arguments either way. Really try to be objective about where you sit, where your organization sits and where your stakeholders might sit on the spectrum, because I think there's a lot more to dig into in the cases of, of how you serve and how you speak. Yeah, George, I think that's a great point. And we talk a lot on this podcast about indicators that show nonprofit trust, for example. And we see that it's pretty high uh, comparatively, right? Um, but trust in overall traditional media in America is at an all-time low. And this disparity that we're talking about may well be either the cause or effect of that. I'm not smart enough to know which one. But I think to your point of being intentional about thinking about that, particularly when it comes to messaging and branding and, and how you talk um, to your audience is super important. In your mind, one more time, maybe you're yelling at me. Maybe there's a voice being like, well, what about the... What about the people that stormed the Capitol? What's the both sides of that one? Well, what about Nazis? What are the both sides of that one? I want to be, I want to reiterate actually how this question was asked. Journalists should always strive, strive, make an effort, make an effort to give each side equal coverage, which means there's still room for discretion to be like, well, well no, that, that's a mass shooter. There's no that side of it. There's no that side of it. And so I think. If you're immediately jumping in a binary, I'd come back to say like, oh my gosh, you're just saying even make the effort, strive, that word. That's what really took me back. Yeah, I agree. You know, yeah, to your point, there's probably an impartial objective truth that may even agree with you, but it's just, you know, that question of, is that something we should strive for? And it's, it's an interesting one. The other joke to me is that you're actually far more persuasive when you do explain both sides and map them out and understand the, the contrary view to where you sit. Yeah, I agree. I think we should dive into this more. I think news literacy will be something that'll become um, increasingly important, um, especially as you move into an election year and we start talking about messaging, narrative, well, definitely something great. Our next story is, I, I just, the, this, is this is for you. It's for you. This is, okay. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is just uh, a press release uh, released by the spacefoundation.org, um, which 
um, advocates for relationships between business, government, education, and local communities uh, to collaborate on on space exploration and, and those those industries. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they put out a statement about if you're a space nerd, like you're truly remarkable. And so that first image that came out, the that deep field image with all the stars, and some people said, "Ah, oh, it looks a little blurry." Um, the science behind that is truly incredible. Light from that picture took billions of years to reach us, which means by default, when you look at that picture, you are looking backwards in time into a part of the universe that probably is now very different from how we see it, because that's how long it took for the light to get to us. Um, that concept is truly crazy. And uh, I think what we wanted to talk about on its podcast is that there's some intangible benefit to awe and discovery and pride in these scientific achievements and other kinds of achievements that I think serve a really important, really human purpose. And, you know, George, something you and I talk about um, and have lots of thoughts about uh, is the effective altruism movement, for example, which seeks to kind of like maximize gains um, for people. And I think that that's, it's an important approach to philanthropy, right? Uh, maximizing the most good for the most people in a philanthropic approach. I think there's something also to be said, investing in discovery and awe, and that we as humans can build this freaking telescope traveling around the sun at however many that tens of thousands of miles an hour that could take a picture with the 12 hour exposure and look back billions of years into the universe i think that's important too and yeah it's just cool and i'm nerding out you should nerd out i think that's awesome i, I like how you're you have you have primed yourself for an effective altruism rant. I see you. You're like, how can I get it in there? Don't worry, we'll we'll have it out on effective altruism and, and pull it in and pull it in. I pulled this one. I wanted to have an excuse. So the nonprofit, the Space Foundation, clearly the smart move press release. I think there's a lot more that you can be putting out there. You know, we're looking at light that started its journey over four billion years ago. Reminder: the Earth is about four point five billion years old, and humans in our sort of modern-ish, or as we understand it, form only around about 200,000 years. We're just getting started. And it's just a great and important context, I think, to have because I think we get caught in the micro moment of the world is ending, the world is crashing, all of these things going on all at once. And I think it is a very helpful thing to, to pull back and look at the past, light that has been traveling for that many light years and and realize like, oh my gosh, we're so small and we're just getting started. Uh, but also the work matters. So here, just to bring it back a touch more practical, I think there's tremendous messaging capability to take that big picture narrative of these images and pull it into your cause. You know, what is it, what does it look like your work in, in this larger context of, you know, for instance, no matter how many planets we go to, I think the great the great philosopher Winnie the Pooh once said, wherever you go, there you are. And so the problems we have now will be the problems we have potentially in the future. So I, I think both, it's not either or, both need to be done, right? Clearly you need to 
explore. Um, it's part of our, our, our DNA and also part of a smart strategy of saying like, well, maybe not just one planet for all of the things we have. Maybe we should keep our stuff on a couple places. Uh, but also the way we work with each other is the work that nonprofits focus on. So I don't know. I wanted to deliver that thought to people as an excuse to geek out about, you know, stars and stuff. Oh, absolutely. And, and also there, there's actually, I think, a relatively healthy kind of space nationalism slash competition, but also cooperation, right? Like um, countries have different space programs. They compete against each other all the time. But they also work together all the time. And as we speak, floating above the United States or the world is the International Space Station on which there are Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts working side by side. And in a point where relations are obviously at the lowest they've been in decades, that's still something that exists, right? And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said and unpacked there, but um, I agree with your sentiment. All right, I'll take us into our next story. This comes from cleveland19.com. And again, something we have been talking about is uh, every two seconds, someone in the United States needs blood or platelets, according to the American Red Cross. Um, but every summer, we've seen this decline. Uh, blood donations are going down. So uh, blood, blood drives and, and, and all those donation vehicles are, are really taking a hit during the pandemic. Um, and the spokeswoman for the American Red Cross said in June alone, we saw a 12% decline in donations, which, quote, is very significant and more than we've seen in many many months um and the article goes on to say that summer months are always a struggle for blood collections because people are on vacation uh you know schools are closed and that's a primary point of contact for those kind of drives but uh george this i think is not radically distinct from the shortage in volunteer uh volunteers and volunteerism we're seeing across the united states there seems to be just less of a engagement on, on these sort of things, I think in a way, this is a, a form of volunteering. Um, so what's your, what's your take on this? One important to know the seasonality of, of the business uh, and, you know, shout out to one of our clients, bloodworks.org and bloodworks in Northwest uh, specifically. And they, they deal with the same things and it comes back to schools actually in this case, in one part where schools are out, that's a big source of a lot of these blood drives and it's, you know, looking at the fact that just because school is out doesn't mean that the need for blood is 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 any less and the other thing is i think you're right that there's a hint of what it looks like when gas prices get this high when inflation gets this high and transportation comes with a higher cost because frankly you need to get from a to b and if the donors blood donors that is are you know reducing their travel then that could also mean like less foot traffic flow and uh, driving to um, to donate blood potentially. So it is a uh, one of those second order effects that you know, I just saw pop up a few times in, in the news. Wanted to call out. Also interesting to know the the macro seasonality uh, that that plays into our our natural school cycle. Absolutely, I think that's a great point to bring up. Uh, something we'll keep an eye on moving forward. All right, George, how about feel good? This is a this is a Nick special. Would you find for us? All right, this isn't a story so much as much as a content or recommendation. Uh, drop this into your Slack, share it in your newsletter, whatever you got to do. But uh, I recently, George, have been binge watching Queer Eye on Netflix, 
And I wanted to highlight this episode, which is titled Give Me Shelter, um, where the, the Fab Five, um, uh, the cast of, of Queer Eye, um, you know, the premise of the show is they go, they find someone who needs uh, a little bit of a self-loving, right? And they help them up their, their style, um, their, their hygiene, and usually they get some kind of renovation involved as well. But um, anyway, on this episode of one of the more recent seasons, uh, um, the five went to a 36-year-old man named Chris Baker, who is the executive director and founder of the Other Ones Foundation, which helps homeless people in Texas. And the episode is really, really heartwarming and uplifting. But I think if you are a nonprofit professional, particularly if you are one who worked with disadvantaged and at-risk communities, I think this episode can be really important because the whole spirit of the episode and the show really is self-love, right? And here you had this amazing guy who was just giving so much to so many people that he didn't really have time for himself, um, didn't have space to process things in his life, and quite frankly was burning out, um, potentially to the detriment of his own organization. And the episode kind of takes him through the journey of realizing that um, helping himself and creating the, the space that he needs to be well can actually help him do more good for other people. So anyway, if you're a nonprofit professional and you're sitting on your couch looking for, for some good television uh, on a Friday night, this is it. Thanks, Nick. That's pretty great. Uh, and I, I think the the other interesting thing here is they Chris actually had like a fundraiser coming up and, and talked about how it was vital for him to come off as confident and to look the part or at least feel the part. And so there's seems like there's two elements going on there the 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 external what we wear and then the internal what we feel so i like that they kind of talked to both great stuff all right nick thanks for bringing us all this and stay uh stay cool out there you too thanks george this has been using the whole whale podcast if you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 